you have your Bibles, I hope you do, go ahead and turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we are in a series that goes from Genesis to Revelation. We started the series back in the first week of January, as many of you know, and we are walking through the story of the Bible. And we're saying, how do we go from a garden to two two worshipers of God in a garden to a city that fills the entire world where everyone in it worships God. How do, we, how do we go from there? And so that's what we're looking at, what we call this gospel story. And so what we did last week was painful. You remember? Last week, we walked through the gospel story. Well, you walked through the gospel story um, up to the point where we are. And we're going to do that again. So we're up to Exodus. And, and so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through, and you are going to do this part because um, you don't need me to do it. We need to do it together. So how do we begin the gospel? How do we begin? We have a creator, and what do we call him? God. He's also our cosmic sovereign king, God. Okay, and what does he do? He creates. Oh, look, the creator creates. Um, Good. And we see that he does it for his glory, and everything that he does is to display his glory, and then he does something else. What does he Make. You guys know this. Yes, he made a garden. After the garden. Let's kind of get Sean's point at it. He made Sean. (laughs) Sean sinned, and he's the fault of all humanity. (laughs) Um, So he made man and woman in his So that's pretty telling. So everything man does is to be for the glory of God because he reflects the image of God. Okay, let's go on. So the story keeps going. What happens next? Man sins. That's too bad. Keep going, right? No. What happens? He's kicked out of the garden, which the garden represents the kingdom of God where his presence and his rule is made known. That's important to know. That's where his presence and rule is made known. Man is removed. But before he's removed, God gives a promise. It's kind of hidden and obscure, but only later do we find out really what it is. What is that promise? There's a serpent crusher coming. Isn't that good news? There's a serpent crusher. The serpent sneaks in, deceives Adam and Eve. They take of the fruit they're not supposed to. And God says, don't worry. There's one day someone's going to crush that serpent. What happens next? I can't hear any of this little talk. Somebody shout it out like you know the answer. Somebody please. God chooses Abram. Changes the name to Abraham. Right. God chooses a man. So, so we're going to have the serpent crusher. How is the serpent crusher going to come? Well, God chooses a man named Abraham. Gives him three promises that you're going to be a great nation. You're going to have land. And you're going to be a blessing. He's going to bless Abram, that Abram would be a blessing to all nations. Well, that's really cool news. And then we 
We keep tracking through. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. We're now at Genesis 49. Jacob is on his deathbed. We've gone from one couple, Abraham and Sarah. God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. At the end of Genesis, now we have about 70 people. And Jacob gives a blessing to one of his sons. What is that blessing? The scepter will not depart from the line of Judah. So what we understand is that there's going to be a king that comes from one of, D of Jacob's sons named Judah. So from the line of Judah, there's going to be a son who's going to be a king. That's good news. So now we're looking for this king who's going to come. But now Israel is also, um, because of a famine, they're in Egypt. They had a great uh, position in Egypt, but... Upon the death of a pharaoh, new pharaoh came, didn't like the Israelites anymore, and so began to oppress them and made them slaves. And Israel begins to cry out to God, and God rescues his people. How does he rescue them? Moses. Wait, what? Passover. Passover through the blood of a substituted of through the blood of a substitutionary lamb. There's a lamb that's killed so the Israelites will be freed. And we looked at how that really points to the greater lamb, Jesus. And so so through the, the death, the sacrifice of this lamb, Israel is brought out of Egypt that they would then become the people of God. And at the end of Exodus, they build a tabernacle. This tabernacle is, the, uh, is where God dwells. So now we have God dwelling with his people. And so this is kind of where we're at at the moment. And now we're going to be in 2 Samuel 7. So we're fast-forwarding eight books. It's a lot of books. I told you, we're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis, and we're going to start picking up the pace. Next week, I believe we're in Isaiah 53. So we are going to be moving right along. So before we look at, um, at 2 Samuel 7, let me just kind of catch up where we're at here. So um, at the end of Exodus, God has, has rescued his people. He now dwells with them, and he's going to bring them into the promised land. However, Israel does not obey God. And God wants Israel to know that the way they worship him is through obedience to his word. Adam and Eve had to find that out when they disobeyed God's word, which resulted in the removal from the garden. So God is teaching his people will worship him through the word. And so because they disobeyed, 40-year detour through the wilderness, God then eventually brings Israel into the promised land where they defeat Jericho, this mighty nation, and then they defeat all the other nations. And what happens is we move into a period called the Judges. And what would happen is now Israel dwells in this land, and they would follow God, but then eventually they would stop following God, and they would kind of begin worshiping other idols like the other nations do, uh, because they weren't completely obedient to God. And uh, so what, God, what would happen is God would give them over into slavery to these other nations. They would, uh, the Philistines usually would come over, uh, um, defeat them, and then they are enslaved for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. They then would cry out to God, God, we need help. And God would send a judge. The judge would defeat the enemies and bring the people back to they would worship God. But what would happen then? Israel would repeat the cycle where they would fall away from God. They'd cry and then be defeated by the enemies, cry out to God. God would send the judge. He would rescue them, and the cycle would repeat. That's the book of Judges right there. Um, 
And then at the, as we move into 1 Samuel, Israel says, look, we, we don't want any more judges. We don't want it. We want a king. That's not a bad request. God said you're going to have a king from the tribe of Judah. Might as well have a king. We want a king like the other nations. That's the problem. All of a sudden, they want to be like the other nations, the nations God told them to overcome. And so God gives them a king, and they choose a king from the line of Benjamin? Does that make sense? There's been nothing about the tribe of Benjamin. But now they choose a king from the line of Benjamin. His name is Saul. Was Saul a good king? No, Saul is a bad king. He doesn't follow God. He disobeys God's word. Therefore, God says, no longer will you be king. And he chooses a man named David from the tribe of? Say it like you know it. Like Judah. There we go. And so over these three to four hundred years that now we're at, um, at David reigning as king, God has been teaching Israel his faithfulness, has been teaching him that he, are, he is sovereign over all things and that they worship him through his word. And now we're at 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is a very climactic chapter, which I think we'll see why. So what I want to do is let's stand and we're going to read verses 1 through 16. Uh, it's a quite a bit. If you need to take a seat during it, that's okay. This is not an endurance test, although it might be. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Let me pray. Father, we come to you now. God, this is, this is your gospel story. God, we're reading what you have done and what you are doing. 
God, give us wisdom now as we look at your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to know it. Help us to love it. And God, give us wisdom on how we live today in light of it. God, we thank you for this. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So, chapter 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David, Jerusalem. It doesn't get much better than this. They've defeated all their enemies. We see that in chapter 7, verse 1. He's given them rest from all surrounding enemies. At this moment in time, Israel is more prosperous than they have ever been. The ark, the presence of God, has just come into the city of David, the capital of Israel. This is an amazing time in the history of Israel. It appears that all the promises of God are about to come true. We have the king from the line of Judah reigning. We have rest from all the enemies. We have a land that is before us. I mean, almost all the promises are coming true here. God has blessed them immensely. Is David going to be the one who crushes the head of the serpent? I mean, that's, that's where we're at at this moment. That, that's what the Israelites are all thinking. I mean, the ark has just come in. So this is, this is kind of where we start. And now David, he looks at his house, this beautiful house of cedar. He looks at a tent. It probably wasn't a very nice North Face tent or marmot or any of those. It's just a tent. It's probably pretty dusty. It's been going, it's been traveling for a long time. And, and it's moved into the city of David. David's just looking at him. Really awesome house where he dwells and a tent where God dwells. And he says, this just can't be. So he talks to Nathan in verse 2, and Nathan says, go, go do all that you want. Nathan sees that he wants to build God a temple, a real house, a house worthy of God. So he says, go, go do it. And then only after that, God then says to Nathan, hold on here, buddy. I'm not going to have David do this. And he kind of puts the brakes on everything. Um, and basically, he gives a historical reason. He says, the history of Israel, I've never asked anyone to build me a house. I'm not asking anyone to do it right now. So you don't need to do that right now, David. It's not that David had a bad idea. It was a great idea. In fact, I love that he's concerned about the glory of God. I love that he's concerned about the glory of God. But no one's more concerned about the glory of God than God is. No one's more concerned. So even as David's going, this will be great for God, God said, no, not yet. Not yet. So David, what we see, has a great plan to glorify God. It's a great plan to glorify God. He's going to build God a house. But God says no, because God has a greater plan to glorify himself. And that's our point. God has a greater plan to glorify himself. And God's going to reveal this in two ways. First, he's going to kind of give this general um, description of the plan. And then he's going to get much more specific on how it's going to come about. In verses 9 through 11, we're just kind of going to go through these kind of quick. We see the general plan in about four promises. We see God is going to make David a great name. God is going to plant his people in the land and give them security. So, so basically that's already happened and that's going to just kind of come and happen all the more. God is going to give David rest from all his enemies. It's kind of, it's already happened. And in chapter 8, we're going to see God continues to give David victory over all the enemies. And then in verse 4, 
God's going to build David a house. Well, that's interesting. I mean, David's here saying, I want to build you a house. I have a house. And God now says, I'm going to build you a house. What we have here is God is actually making a covenant with David. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we said God always relates to his people through covenant. Always relates to his people through covenant. And just because we don't see the word covenant here doesn't mean there's not a covenant. We have two people coming together. There's obligations. And, and, and God is saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. And it seems like all the obligations are kind of falling on the shoulders of God. He's saying, this is what I'm going to do. So he's making this covenant with David about how he's going to interact with him, what the relationship is going to look like, and what it's going to look like after David. And then we kind of move into the specific plan. And we see that in verses 12 through 16. And it begins by God saying, I'm going to give you a son. So everything that now is going to come place next after this is going to be related to the son. God's going to say, and this is what I'm going to do for your son. So God's going to build a house. It appears it's going to come through this son. And God says, I'm going to establish your son's throne forever. We see that in verse 12, 13, and 16. Three times. I'm going to establish your throne. And I think twice he says the words forever. We then see... Um, Oh, and a side note on that. If the throne's going to be established forever, does that mean it's probably going to be a pretty strong throne? Probably. I mean, if it's a weak throne, it's not going to last very long. But if it's a strong throne, it's going to be able to overcome the enemies, so it's going to be able to last. So this is going to be a very strong throne, a throne that no enemy is going to be able to conquer. And then we have God's going to have a special relationship with this son. Verse 14, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. This is why David is considered a son of God. This is why the line of kings that come from David can be considered sons of God. So we have a special relationship. God's going to say, and, and this king is going to be my son. And then number four, we see God says, I will never remove my steadfast love from this son. This is covenant language here. My hesed love. My steadfast love. It will never, ever be removed. Then, we have God is going to have this son build him a house. So this son's going to build him a house. So here, in the beginning, David says, I want to build you a house. And God says, actually, I'm going to build you a house. And then, out of your house, you're going to have a son that's come, and he is going to be the one that builds me a house. Um, so before we move on, let's just kind of make sure we understand the word house, because the word house occurs 15 times altogether in this chapter. It's a pretty major theme that runs through here. Uh, so what's meant in the word house? Well, what do you do in your house? You live there, right? It's where your presence is made known in your house. And in your house, who's in charge? You are. Your rule is exercised in your house, right? So your house is going to represent your presence and your rule. And we see that. Uh, David's house is going to last forever. Well, that means his rule is going to be exercised forever, and the presence of David is going to be recognized forever through there, through his sons. So house means presence and rule. So kind of in summary here, what we have is God's going to bless the house of David so that he will be glorified, so that God will be glorified through the son who will build him a house. You see that? 
God is going to bless the house of David so that God, he, will be glorified through the son who's going to build him a house. Now just pause for a moment. Again, Israel is experiencing unprecedented prosperity and peace. They have gone from one weak nation escaping Egypt to now a powerful, dominating nation that has crushed all the enemies around them. And now God says, in this time of great prosperity, I'm going to do even more for you. I'm going to bless you all the more. Your kingdom will never end. I'm going to establish your throne forever. I'm going to give you peace and rest forever. Now, this is the God that we come and worship. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that as we gather here today, we come to serve, we come to honor, we come to love, we come to, to worship him and lift up his name because he loves to display his grace. He loves to display his mercy. He loves to display his kindness. So many people think in the Old Testament that we have this God who's just mad and vengeful and angry. Does this sound like an ad, a mad, angry, vengeful God? R remember Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin. What does God do? He comes in like the Incredible Hulk, ripping through the trees, tossing them around. No, not quite. He walks in and says, Adam, Eve, where are you? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat? Why did you do this? He walks in and just this love and peace. And now, in this time of great prosperity, and even knowing that the kings that are going to come later are not all going to worship him, he says, I'm going to make you this amazing covenant. I will never, ever, ever leave you. I'm going to establish your throne forever. This is the God that we serve. He loves to bless his people. He loves to give his grace to his people. He loves to let his presence be known to his people. He wants to satisfy us and abundantly share himself with us. So just remember, when we're going through the Old Testament, we don't have an angry God here. We have a God who regularly demonstrates his love and his kindness and his grace. This is the God that we worship. And so now as we see this promise that God is going to give David a son and his, the son's house is going to reign forever. Who's this son? Isn't that the question that we want to know? And of course then we go and the next king is Solomon. And Solomon is a very wise king, the wisest man to have ever lived. And under Solomon's reign, it seems that all these promises are coming true. All the enemies are destroyed during Solomon's reign. He doesn't need to fight anyone because David had already defeated them all. Solomon reigns. He builds God a temple. It's beautiful. It's amazing. People from around the world will come and they will look at this temple. We're left with going, is, is this the serpent crusher? Is this the one we've been waiting for Genesis 3? Is this the one from Genesis 49 that was prophesied? The, lion, the king, the lion king of Judah? Surely this is Solomon. But if you know the story, you know he's not the serpent crusher. Because Solomon, he does follow God, and then he doesn't follow God. Because what does he start to do? He starts to marry a lot of women. A lot of women. A lot. A lot. A lot of women, like 700 wives, 300 concubines or something. That's a lot of women. That's a lot of gifts on Valentine's Day. <laughs> like, 
It's a lot. We struggle with giving one. <laughs> Could you imagine seven, a thousand? Yeah, that's a nightmare. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. You know I do. Uh, and these foreign wives, well, what do they bring with them? Foreign gods. So what does Solomon do? The wisest man. He acts foolishly and begins worshiping these false gods. And his heart is lured away from the one true God. So what does God do at this moment? Does he come down with his bat and whack him? Say, no, I've told you not to do this. No, remember, God will not remove his steadfast love. When I will be to him a father and he shall be to my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but I will not remove my steadfast love. I'm establishing this throne forever. So the throne continues to go. And then after Solomon, we have the son Rehoboam. This really starts going into like the depths of, his, of Israel's history. Rehoboam's an idiot. He is really the theological word there that best describes him. Um, under him, the kingdom splits. So that's how good he is. So now we have ten tribes go to the northern kingdom. Two tribes go to the southern kingdom. The tribes in the southern kingdom are represented by Benjamin and Judah. So the line of David, the line of Judah, is going to travel through the southern kingdom. That's, so now we're going to be focusing that way for this king that's supposed to be coming. Um, eventually, both kingdoms are destroyed, and they're taken into captivity. Assyria takes the northern kingdom. Babylon takes the southern kingdom. They're gone. No longer are they in their land. They're dispersed. They're a conquered people. But even as they're conquered, they look forward to this promise. God, you said you're going to bring a king. and You're never removing your steadfast love. And for a long time, it looks as though the line of David is not going to be seen again. And in Daniel 7, though, we read that even in exile, Israel continues to cling to these promises. And Daniel 7 is probably one of the most famous passages regarding this king who's going to come. And so this is, remember, in exile, David's going, or Daniel's going to say this. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, that's cool. So here we are in exile. You say, the king is coming. Let's not lose hope. The king is coming. And it seems that this king is a little bigger than even what we thought in, in, in 2 Samuel 7. I mean, he's not just a king of Israel, but he's the king of all nations, languages, and peoples. He has an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. I mean, it seems that this king has been heightened a little bit. Our anticipation has grown. So as we make our way through the prophets, the prophets keep reminding us a king is coming, a king is coming, but we keep saying, who's this king? Who's this king? Where is the king coming? And it's not until the New Testament that we get a very clear answer. Matthew 1.1, this is what we read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of David. Of Abraham. Do you see why that's a big title right now? 
We're looking for the one who comes from David. We've been looking for him for 700 or for 1,000 years since the promise made to David. Now we have a king from Abraham, from Judah, from David. This is him. All throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus is called the son of David. When Jesus enters Jerusalem on the, the Sunday prior to, uh, prior to the week he's crucified, this is what the crowds say. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed, he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Could Matthew be more clear on who he's talking about? The king has come. The one who's going to reign over all peoples. The one who will build God a house. This is him. But Luke, Luke's even more clear than Matthew. So an angel comes to, to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, okay, that makes sense. I'm not married. Sure, why not? And so he then says, let me tell you who this baby is, which is very helpful for us as we read now. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be a great, he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see it's one story? See, we have a problem because we have this thing called Old Testament and New Testament, and we think that we enter into a new story when we come into the New Testament. It's not a new story. We're just now coming to the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. It's very important. It's not a new story. It's the same story, the one we've been looking for. Now we come to the fulfillment of the Old Testament, what everything has been pointing towards. So according to the, net, according to the testimony of the New Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's greater plan. Do you see that? The New Testament writers make it abundantly clear. He's the son of David, the one who's going to reign forever, the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is the greater son of David. Jesus is the one who defeats all enemies. He defeats enemies that we don't even know about or that we're not aware or we don't think are the biggest enemies like sin, Satan, and death. Jesus is the one, because of what he did on the cross, is then exalted to the throne that sits above all thrones. And he reigns on high forever. Jesus is the steadfast love of God. When he comes and he does, remember, last week we looked at how he celebrates Passover by breaking the bread and saying, this is my body, this is my blood. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of the covenant. I am the steadfast love of the Father. And Jesus builds God a house. Did he? That's an interesting one. I mean, I'm tracking so far, but God says, I'm going to build you a house, David, which means there's going to be a line of kings that come from David, and this kingdom's going to last forever. And your son is going to build me a house. And so I'm tracking pretty good that David, or that Jesus does most of these things, but, and he was a carpenter, so he's got the skills, but I don't remember seeing him put boards together to form a house. I don't remember seeing him put stones together to form a house. Did he do this? Did he make a house? This, this, this is a big question because everything around 2 Samuel 7 is about this house. We need this house where the rule and presence of God is going to be made known. 
Does Jesus not build a house where God's rule and presence is made known? Well, he does. But it's a little different than what we think. 1 Peter chapter 2. That's a very helpful verse right here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. I don't know, is it up here? Oh, it is up here. It's pretty cool. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You, yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now maybe you're you're tracking here, but let me help out a little bit. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one who's rejected. We see that because the Pharisees rejected him, the Jews rejected him, the Romans rejected him. We reject him as we're born, and and that's why he was crucified. So he's crucified, but whoever believes in this stone will not be put to shame. Why? Because they're going to be forgiven of their sins. So whoever believes in this cornerstone. Now what's a cornerstone? Cornerstone is like the foundation. It's the very first thing you lay. It's the most important thing. If you have a weak foundation, what's going to happen? Everything you build on it is going to crumble. But if your foundation is very, very strong, then the building that's built upon it could last forever. And so Jesus is the cornerstone who has been chosen by God. And it says that believers are the stones built upon this cornerstone that form the spiritual house of God. Believers are the stones built upon the cornerstones that form the spiritual house of God. Verse 5, we are living stones. Let's just think about this. David wants to build God a temple, a house. He looks at his house, he goes, man, my house is cedar. I'm going to make his house even better. I'm going to put cool stones, probably inlay it with gold. It's going to look really awesome. He's thinking, and so is Solomon, okay, I need to build a house, and it's going to be here, in this geographical location. And people will travel to here, to this limited geographical location, to see this house, which represents God's presence and rule. Isn't that cute? Is that what God wants? I want to be known in this little area right here? This one tiny area? No. He says, I'm going to make a house. And it's going to, it's going to fill the entire earth. And that's where my presence is going to be made known. And the way I'm going to do that is my foundation is going to be Jesus. And I'm going to take all the people who believe in Jesus and I'm going to build them on top of this foundation so they will form the spiritual house which I will dwell. God doesn't want something that people have to come to. He's building a house that fills the entire earth, that spreads, not limited geographically, but fills all of geography so that he would be made known in all the earth. Does that not sound familiar? Genesis 1 and 2. God gives man, makes man his image that what? They would subdue creation, multiply, and 
fill the earth, that they would take the kingdom of God, representing the presence and rule of God, and by having babies, lots and lots of babies, they would fill the earth, and all the earth would be, now, would be worshiping God because everyone would be in the image of God. They rejected God, so they didn't do that. But God didn't throw his plans in the trash. He said, don't worry, I'm going to bring forth a greater Adam, one who will never forsake me. And through him, I will build a house that will fill the entire creation. That's the church. So he has built and is building this house today. The church is the spiritual habitation of God. Now just think about this. Just, just, just wrestle through this. Work through implications. This means you, you were saved for God. I mean, he, he saved you so he would make you actually a part of his house that he's going to live in and be in. And you're formed with all these other believers, all built upon Jesus. You were saved for God. Do you see how much God loves you also? I mean, he doesn't just want to be near you like a house, like like I'm near a wall, like I'm near the house, right? He wants to be in you. He wants to be with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Like I can hug this, and I can do that, and it looks really kind of silly because I'm hugging a wall. That's, that's not what God wants. He doesn't want a, a house made of cedar. He wants a house made up of worshipers of him who he'll embrace forever through his son Jesus. And what do we do? Are we passive in this? Are we just, oh, I'm a stone? Just a stone. Is that what we are? Is this what we do? You're like, no. It says we're made into a priesthood. And what do we do as a priesthood? We offer spiritual sacrifices. What does that mean? It means we're active worshipers of God. So this house is actively worshiping God, the God who dwells in it. This means we're not passive. We're not just, I'm a stone, I'm saved, yay. We're saved to be with God and to worship him in everything that we do. So let's, let's just unpack this kind of. This means God loves to be with you. You know that? I mean, he chose you actually he chose you so he would dwell with you forever. You get that? Like you're not like the redheaded stepchild adopted in the family, but just kind of, why don't you stay way over there? Sorry if you're redheaded. I don't think we have any today. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, but he doesn't just say, stay over there. He's like, I've saved you to be with me forever. Because his house lasts forever. So when God saved you, it was so you would live with him forever. Do you know that? That's God's love for you, that you would be with him forever. It also means that we as a church reveal the presence and rule of God in this community. Like by being together, we represent God's rule and presence. What a responsibility. What a privilege. So God saved you and me that together we would demonstrate his love in this, in this world. That by the world looking at us, they would see God. 
So what does it mean that we reveal God's presence? Um, when people see the way we love one another and the way we serve, see one, serve one another, what are they actually doing? They're seeing God. Do you know that? Like just, just put that forefront in your mind. When you are with other believers, you're demonstrating God. Are you? Think about that. Like, that should affect the way we live and interact with each other. When we do acts of love and kindness for each other, they're not meaningless. They're full of meaning. We're revealing the presence of God in this world, saying this is how God is. That's what happens when we gather together. How do we reveal his rule? We're really, when the world looks at the church, they should see what all of eternity looks like. That doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean that we never mess up. But they're going to see what God's holiness looks like here in the church. They're going to see that we love what God loves and we hate what he hates. Do you hate what God hates? Do you? The one that, that convicts me and I've wrestled with, what entertains me? Does the thing that entertain me, is that what God hates or is it what he loves? Think about what you watch. Think about what you do. Think about how you participate in things. When we encourage one another, when we serve one another, when we rebuke one another, when we do church discipline, we're revealing God's holiness and revealing the rule of God in this world. So an implication of that would mean we cannot only be together in this building, right? Because if we represent the rule and presence of God. That's great for us, and we need that. We remind each other about God's rule and presence regularly by being together. But that means we have a powerful testimony in this world. And guess what? The world's not coming in here. You wonder why? Because it doesn't want to be in here, because the darkness does not like light. So what does that mean we do? I'm going to work it out. You see it, don't you? We need to go out, but we don't just go out individually. We do what? Go out together. Go out together. So what does that look like? Well, we could, there's a, like a ton of things we could say about that. Um, if you have people over at your house, have believers and unbelievers to your house. Why would you have both? Because you want your unbelieving friends to see a picture of the presence and rule of God. So let them see that by having more believers with you. Let them, let them see what that looks like. Um, Invite, invite members of the church to go serve at work or in your neighborhood. Meet needs, but do it together. Do it by yourself, and that's great when you do it by yourself. But if together we, in a very powerful way, demonstrate the love and presence and rule of God, then let's do it together. And doesn't this tell us something that we should be partnering with other churches also? Because if we do this together and another church does that, what happens when we combine together? Does that not in even in a more powerful, intangible way show this world the presence and rule of God? I mean, what a great passage. It says, look, churches can't just be their own little cul-de-sacs. We must work together with other churches. Go on mission trips together. And let's together go and visit our missionaries and other people and other parts of the world that we would join believers in other parts of the world Showing how God's rule and presence unites people of all tribes, nations, and languages. Some people say, you know, maybe we don't need to go over the places. 
Maybe it's better we just send money. No, we need to go locally and we need to go foreign. Because there's a powerful thing when a church in America goes to a church in Nigeria and partners with them, we're showing a picture of the kingdom of God in eternity right then. Which is a powerful picture to unbelievers as they're going, why are these people here? Why are they partnering? Why are they helping? And those who are there for a long term get to say, they're demonstrating the presence and rule of God. And they want you to know him. The picture of the Bible, the picture the Bible gives us is, is this breathtaking picture of how God loves to reveal himself and how he loves us. He saves you that you'd be with him. So how do we respond? How do we respond right now? Like those are things that we can do. We can invite believers over. We can do things at our house. We can go on mission trips. All those things are good. What do we do right now? Like right now, like we're in our seats. Um, how do we respond to the fact that God makes his presence known through the church? So this is, what, this is what David did. If you go back to 2 Samuel 7, verse 18, David says this. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought me, brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there's no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Verse 26, your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. David just simply acknowledges his smallness, his inadequacy, and how great God is. I mean, think about it. God's saying, I made you that I dwell with you forever. Do you sit there and go, yeah, you did? I mean, is that our reaction? I hope not. He chose us, us who we didn't believe in him, us who we didn't love him, us who we rejected him. And he says, no, I'm going to, by my grace, save you. I'm going to live with you forever. David humbly worships God. So I was watching a cartoon with my kids the other day. I was not prepared to see great theology in this cartoon, but it was there. You got to look for it, but it's there. Uh, I have no idea what this cartoon is, but uh, there's a king, and it's, it's snowing, and he gets lost in his kingdom, uh, probably because of the weather. And uh, he, he makes his way to a little house, um, and, he, and he goes in, and there's some, some peasants there, a, a husband and wife and their kids. They're poor, some of the poorest people in his kingdom. And they invite him in. Immediately they see that he's the king. And they fall down and say, oh, king, they're so glad that he's, worse, that that he's there with them. And then um, the queen and the two little princess daughters realize that the king is taking a long time, so obviously he's lost. So they get in their sleigh, and they're going to go find him, which is every good cartoon happens. And so, uh, eventually, of course, they find him, because they do, and they now have the entire royal family inside this little peasant house. And this family, I mean, they're just, they're just beaming. The presence of God, or the prince, the prince of this king is here with us. And they're excited. And they're just, they're just full of excitement. And then one of the princess daughters looks at their tree, because it's Christmas time, and sees absolutely no, no presence there. No presence at all. So she goes back to the sleigh, where they put the presents. Because that's what you do when you're looking for your dad in a snowstorm during Christmas. So they get all the presents, and they bring them into the house, and they give them to the family. And you know what the family did? They just ripped into them. 
Is that what they did? No, we know that's not true, because what did they do? The little girls the, 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 of, the, of, the, of the house and, and the mom and dad, they just, just fall down and say, King, you were so great. King, we love you. King, oh, thank you. You do not have to do this. King, we are not worthy of these presents. And they just, they just start honoring the king. I think that's how we respond to a text like this. I mean, how else do you respond to God saying, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to keep blessing you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to live with you forever, I'm going to pour great blessings on you, and you're going to experience my presence and my rule, and you're going to know me, and I'll never, dwell, and I'll never leave you, and you're going to have my love with you forever. What do you do? You just fall down before the king, and you say, God, thank you. I'm so unworthy. I don't, I don't deserve any of this. And so that's what I want us to do. I just want us to kind of uh, close in prayer and just in our seats. While I'm praying, you pray. And I just want you just to praise God and, and to thank Him that He saves you to be with Him forever. Acknowledge your humbleness before Him. Acknowledge how great He is. Acknowledge His grace. Maybe you need just to repent and say, God, man, I... I've not been honoring you. I've been taking all of this for granted. I just gather with the church like it's nothing. I leave the church as if it's nothing. But God, this is your dwelling place. Oh, how I need to be with the church. Oh, how beautiful this is that you make your presence known to us here. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you just spend time worshiping. Just, I just want to give you a few moments and, uh, and just confess and praise God. And so I'm going to pray, and the team is going to come up, and they're going to sing a song. And, and during that time, we're going to just have an opportunity to worship God also through our giving. Um, and then I'll come back up, and we'll do, if there's any questions, questions at that time. Let me, uh, let me pray. We don't have any questions today, so it makes this a little quick. Um, but I do want to make one comment. I totally butchered an answer last week, I think. Um, one of you asked, basically, how are the saints in the Old Testament uh, saved when Jesus hadn't come yet? I think something like that. Um, and, or how, how do they put their faith in Jesus when Jesus hadn't come? I think that was the question. And I think, I think I really just gave a terrible answer. So in a very simple way, so if you ever wonder how do... Believers in the Old Testament put their faith in Jesus. When you put your faith in the promises of God, they're in Jesus. So that's how I should have just said it. Every time you put your faith in the promises of God, you're putting your faith in Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. So that's how I should have said it. It's very simple that way. And I messed it all up last week by saying lots of other words and saying something else. Um, so that's clarification for you um, and, and even for me. Uh, but there were no other questions. Uh, so... Um, normally I answer questions and I pray um, but I'm just going to let her go to another song and then close in prayer